Welcome to this Uvula audio production of X Marks the Spy by Jack Lancer. Volume 4. Chapter 10. Bug Trouble. Chris dropped to his knees with shooting stars of pain lancing through his skull and oscillating up and down his spinal column. For an instant he poised on all fours trying to gather his wits. Then a hand clutched the back of his coat to yank him upward. Chris grabbed his assailant's wrist and flung him head over heels through the air. As the fellow landed on his back with a thud, Chris pounced like a tiger. I surrender. From where the sun now stands, I shall fight no more. The red mist cleared from Chris's eyes to reveal the face of Kingston II goggling up at him. Geronimo! Chris released his grip hastily. The Apache got to his feet, still looking a bit pop-eyed. He had a towel knotted around his waist, and his lank black hair was wet as if he had just stepped from the shower. Look, Chunde, he grumbled. I know I didn't greet you very nicely as you came in, but did you have to throttle me like that? I was only trying to pick you up and apologize. Chris grinned wryly. Apologize? Listen, you just about decapitated me with that karate chop. So, a slight mistake. Anyway, what's the idea of sneaking in through the window? Don't you know that's dangerous with an Indian in the house? Makes me nervous. Chris sank into an armchair, rubbing the back of his neck. I was expecting to find somebody else in here. He told Geronimo about the phone call from the restaurant and his ruse to bait the intruder. Must have been the same person I cut sign on, said Geronimo. You spotted him? Chris asked eagerly. The Apache shook his head. No, but I knew somebody had been here searching our gear not too long ago. The toothpaste was squeezed out, and somebody had been prying at the fittings of our suitcases. There were still drops of water in the sink that hadn't dried yet, where we washed the toothpaste down the drain. Apparently my bait didn't tempt him, Chris reflected with a frown. Don't be too sure, said Geronimo. I have a hunch he was still around and ducked out the window when he heard my key in the lock. That was probably right after you called. Why didn't you answer my buzz on the walkie-talkie? Didn't hear it. Geronimo held out a bare left wrist. I took my watch off before I climbed into the shower. I was just toweling off when you came pussyfooting around here. Chris got up from his chair to examine the suitcases. Is there anything missing? He inquired. Not as far as I can tell, but neither of us was carrying anything except our own personal gear. Unless he came here to... Geronimo's voice trailed off. The two teen agents looked at each other suddenly as the same thought occurred to both. Chris drew his wallet from hip pocket and plucked out a wafer of plastic that looked like an ordinary credit card. He moved around the room, holding it close to the walls and furniture. When he came to the telephone on the night table, the raised lettering on the card suddenly glowed red. How do you like that for a dirty trick? said Geronimo. The guy comes to pay us a nice social call and bugs our telephone. Chris unscrewed the base plate of the phone cradle. A small block of crystal clear plastic had been clamped inside. It contained a cluster of tiny solid state electronic components. Chris yanked the device out to examine it. Geronimo gave a low whistle. That guy knew his business. Chris nodded. The bug was designed to respond to a single note of the scale. Whoever planted it only had to call from his own telephone, and then, 
while the call was ringing, sound the note on a mouth organ or tuning fork. After that, even the bug telephone was not answered or lifted from its hook. He could eavesdrop on anything said in the room or on any future phone conversation. This circuitry looks like it was made in one of the Iron Curtain countries, Chris murmured. Valud. I'd bet on it. Wonder how he tracked me down to this hotel. Geronimo shrugged. At least we're on to him. Chris slipped the bug into his pocket to send a Pomeroy for technical analysis. How'd you make out the jewelry shop? he asked. Heap bad medicine. Place was calling with police. It looks as if they were taking the whole shop apart piece by piece. What about the owner? Well, now that's the interesting angle. The guy's disappeared. How'd you find that out? Easy. Everybody on the block was talking about him. His name was Julius Hosch. He hasn't been seen in the last week, and his shop has been locked and barred ever since until today. Chris gave his partner a worried look. That could explain how Anson got rumbled. Maybe this Hosch didn't sell him out after all. Maybe Hosch himself was kidnapped and worked over until they pried Anson's name out of him. Geronimo nodded. You may have something there. What's the dope on that girl? Oh, that. That was a false alarm. Her name is Veronica Schlumbacher. She's from Mid-State Teachers College. And she was talking about Schuylkill, Pennsylvania. Not Skykill. That cost me an hour and a half of small talk and an expensive lunch to find out. Geronimo started to grin, and his face hardened. Wait a second. Are you sure she wasn't just giving you the old double shuffle? How so? She says Schuylkill now. But maybe it's no coincidence that Red Joker was casing our room while you were buying her lunch. Chris chewed on the idea a moment. You mean she dropped the word Skykill on purpose just to hook our attention? Why not? She may have been hanging around the lobby just waiting to snaffle us. But why bother? We were going out anyway. Sure, but we might have been back in five minutes for all she knew. Maybe the guy wanted to give our room a real going over, so her job was to keep us occupied. Chris frowned doubtfully. If this gal was just acting, she could draw raves on Broadway. Still, maybe we ought to check her out. He picked up the phone and called the desk. Is a young lady named Mademoiselle Veronica Schlumbacher registered at the hotel? Oui, monsieur. Room 307. Chris hung up. Well, that proves out that part of her story. Doesn't prove she's not phony. With a name like that, for mid-state teachers? The Reds aren't that clever. Geronimo began toying with a black obsidian knife he had brought east with him from the Mescalero Apache Agency. It's one way to find out for sure. Oh no, forget it. We can't go breaking into her room. You think she's back yet? Well, no. She said she was going to do some window shopping, but... What about a roommate? Some girl named Tina Foss. She's the one who's going out with that guy from Schuylkill. Fine, then the coast is clear. But listen. Relax, Chunde. Geronimo patted Chris soothingly. We're both Ivy League gentlemen spies. Heaven forbid we should stoop to anything sordid, like breaking and entering. Just a little small-scale bugging of our own should do the trick. Geronimo dressed, and the boys descended to the third floor. They listened carefully outside 307, but could hear nothing. Then the Apache kept a sharp-eyed lookout along the corridor while Chris knelt down at the door. 
The electronic pickup looked like a tiny screw head. It had a magnetic base. Chris was positioning it close to the keyhole when he heard steps on the carpet inside. A fraction of a second too late. The door opened before Chris could get off his knees. He found himself looking up into the startled face of Veronica Schlumbacher. His own face flushed a deep crimson. Why, Christopher, cool, she exclaimed. Chris scrambled awkwardly to his feet. Oh, hi, Veronica. I I was just looking for my Phi Beta Kappa key. Oh, my goodness, did you lose it? Well, I, I think I did. I, I thought I heard it drop just as I started to knock on your door. He pretended to peer around the floor. As Veronica joined earnestly in the hunt, Chris decided it was high time to cut the comedy. Oh, oh never mind. I, I'm sure I lost it up in my room somewhere. I was hoping you'd got back. I wanted you to meet my roommate from Kingston. Geronimo Johnson. Geronimo looked as impassive as ever. Oh. He raised one hand gravely in an Indian salute. I'm a Mescalero Apache. That's our usual tribal greeting. Veronica giggled. Oh, now isn't that cute? Her face beamed with pleasure. You've got to meet my roommate, Tina Foss. But what about your appointment at two? Oh, that got canceled, Chris said curtly. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Tina was already peering out at the boys. Veronica beckoned her to the door. She was also from Mid-State Teachers and very plump. Oh, what an exciting day. First Ed Katz from Schuylkill, and now we meet you two, she babbled. Geronimo exchanged a wooden Indian glance with Chris. The four arranged to meet in the lounge off the lobby in a few minutes. On the way down, Chris glared at Geronimo. There's one thing I can't stand. It's a smart aleck Indian, he muttered. Next time you get me into a mess like this, there's going to be one fresh Apache scalp dangling from my belt. Ugh, white man speak with forked tongue. There were cups of tea and dinner plans were discussed. Suddenly, Chris heard himself being paged. Monsieur Cool, you have a phone call. You may take it on one of the house phones if you wish. It proved to be Uncle Phil. Terribly sorry, my boy, he said, but I'm afraid I shall have to call off our appointment. You know, the one with that scotch cloak and suit salesman at nine o'clock? Well, that's quite all right, Uncle Phil. I understand perfectly. Things do come up all of a sudden. Exactly. I just received an urgent cable from overseas. Chris walked cheerfully back to the lounge and broke the news that their job interview had just been rescheduled. Nine? Oh dear, what a shame, wailed Veronica. Then she brightened. But that'll leave us plenty of time for dinner. At twenty minutes to nine, the boys dropped their dates at the hotel and went on to La Cannibale. Uncle Phil and Aunt Maud were waiting at a corner table. Good news, mes enfants. Home office says A-OK on Brissy, he reported. All systems are go. What about the invitation to the feet? Chris asked. And the money and the ring? Those are all taken care of. Apparently your chaps at Luxury Motors have been busy little beavers while Paris sleeps. On Thursday morning, you're going to the girls' finishing school near Brissy. Ask for a young lady named Spice Carter. She'll have everything you need. Better go down by car. My private garage will fix you up with something nice and sporty. Now, one final word. Yes, sir, said Chris.
If the contact is made successfully, you'll do everything in your power to keep Skykill out of enemy hands. You understand? Washington will go as high as a million or more if you can make a deal for the device itself. And if not, then your orders are to destroy it, regardless of personal risk. Grubb held a match to his cigar and drew on the flame with every sign of keen enjoyment. Remember, this gadget could alter the balance of power in the Cold War. It seems the Pentagon takes a very dim view of that. Chapter 11 Triple Choice Bracy turned out to be a bustling little market town in the heart of the wine country of eastern France. Chris and Geronimo arrived there shortly before noon on Thursday. Terraced vineyards covered the green slopes that ringed it. Overlooking the whole scene was the Chateau Bracy. Its cone-peaked towers and graceful gray-white stone walls loomed on a high riverbank just beyond the town. The boys had driven down from Paris in a fancy red Alfa Romeo GTZ provided by the CIA garage. It was fully equipped for agent assignment and had a souped-up 1570cc Julia engine that turned like a Swiss clock. After registering at Brissy's only hotel, they inquired the way to the girls' finishing school. Ah, you mean Madame Avril's Lycée for Young Girls? He smiled jovially. Take the east road out of town, messieurs. Look for the white mansion about half a mile from Brissy. In a few minutes, the Alfa Romeo was rolling up a gravel drive that swept past carefully manicured green sward to the portico entrance. After pressing a bell, the boys were admitted to a lobby office. A severe-looking elderly woman greeted them. She looked at the two American youths suspiciously. May I help you, messieurs? Her tone implied that nothing would give her less pleasure. I'd like to see Mademoiselle Spice Carter, said Chris. I believe she just enrolled here. Oui, yesterday, to be precise. Your name, please? Presently, a beautiful red-haired girl came tripping down a curved staircase and into the lobby. One line of a nursery rhyme flashed through Chris's head. Sugar and spice and everything nice. Then he remembered that red pepper was also a kind of spice. She looked as if she might have a pinch of that, too. Oh, Chris, darling... She flitted across the parkade floor and planted a breathless smack on his cheek. How sweet of you to look me up. Of course you're going to take me to lunch. Naturally, said Chris. Close up, he noticed that she had emerald green eyes. Spice turned to Geronimo. And who is this? Sitting Bull? Sitting J-Bull, to you please, said the Indian with cold dignity. She flashed him a dazzling smile and shook hands giving the secret teen agent grip. As the three made their way out of the lobby under the purse-lipped, disapproving gaze of the house mother, Geronimo muttered something to Chris. What language is that? Spice asked. Kickapoo? Apache, said Chris. He was just saying he thinks you must have been recruited from a school for backward girls. No, but he's close. Vassar. Geronimo relented enough to grin. That's about as far as he ever goes, says Chris. His real name is Geronimo Johnson, and he has a weakness for red-haired squaws. He doesn't see too many on the reservation. Well, I think he's just smashing, said Spice. They squeezed into the Alfa Romeo. About lunch, said Chris as they started down the drive. Did you have any place in mind? 
The girls recommended a hash house in town called Otra Rain. Serves yummy snails. Snails it is. And he headed back toward Brissy. By the way, just to clue you in, I'm supposed to be the daughter of a Texas oil millionaire, but it was said I was very unhappy at Vassar, so my alleged daddy at Luxury Motors made a transatlantic call Tuesday. He offered Madame Avril a piece of an oil well to let me enroll in midterm. I just flew in from Paris yesterday. Chris frowned. I could take it this setup has some connection with the party at Chateau Percy tonight? Right. Uncle Phil at the Paris station found out all the girls of the school are invited to the fete every year. You'll go as my date. So far, I haven't found anyone for Geronimo, but if he's with us, I'm sure he'll be admitted. What about the other items? Chris inquired. Pull off the road for a sec. From inside the lining of her spring raincoat, Spice pulled out a wide zipper case of glove-soft leather. There's $50,000 inside in used fifties. Geronimo turned back the carpeting and pressed a button and deposited the zipper case in a secret compartment under the floor. Meanwhile, Spice had groped in her bag and brought out a man's white gold ring set with what looked like a sapphire. The ring did not form a complete circle but ended in two prongs. Here's that UV gimmick. Do you know how it works? Squeeze the prongs together, right? Right. The stone is the ultraviolet lamp. Chris examined the masterpiece of microcircuitry. He slipped it on his third finger and tested the action of the prongs. Be careful not to look straight into the stone, Spice warned. You can't see the ultraviolet rays, but they could ruin your eyes. What's the effective range? Chris asked. About four feet. At that distance... The rays fan out to cover a circular area of about four feet in diameter, so you should be able to check anyone's hand without too much fancy maneuvering. In town, the cobbled streets and quaint old stone buildings were decked with gay flags and streamers for the annual spring festival. They soon found Autrarin, a medieval-looking restaurant nestled in the shadow of Brassi's Burgundian Gothic-style church. Not far off stood a modern structure of chrome steel and glass. Over lunch, Chris asked if Spice had found out anything about the feat or who would attend it. All sorts of people, said Spice. Local society and the jet set from Paris and the Riviera. Quite a few foreigners, too. From what the girls at the school say, including Americans, seems the Count gets around and has a wide acquaintance in diplomatic and artistic circles. Wow, sounds like a full house. After lunch, the boys dropped Spice at the Lycée and spent the rest of the day prowling about the town and its environs to familiarize themselves with the terrain. Both thought it best not to be seen too close to the castle. At eight o'clock, after changing into white dinner jackets, the boys called Spice and the Alfa Romeo. Cars were lined up on the drive to receive the girls and their escorts. Madame Avril looked like a frigate in full sail and led the procession in an ancient but glossy panhard. Chateau Bracy was ablaze with lights. A pair of costume footmen in knee breeches and powdered wigs checked the cars and their occupants. The line of automobiles crawled up the slope to the chateau, past a formal garden of topiary hedges and fruit trees, which were strung with glowing Japanese lanterns. The chateau, half stronghold and half elegant country house, dated from the late Middle Ages. It was U-shaped, enclosing a front courtyard that faced the garden. 
with a spired, thick-walled tower at each corner. Turning over their cars to attendants, the guests filed in through the wide-open doors of the main hall. Under sparkling crystal chandeliers, they were greeted by the Count. Nothing like this back on the reservation, huh, Jerry? Chris murmured. Oh, I don't know. You should see our medicine dance. The Count de Bercy was a slim, elegant man of fifty, with a small, pointed beard and waxed mustache. Every now and then he waved his fingers and sniffed delicately at a perfumed silk handkerchief. His eyes lit up at the sight of the red-haired lycée student. Charmante, revisante, he exclaimed, then took Spice's hand and kissed it resoundingly. My dear, who dresses you? Well, I do, really, said Spice. No, 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 the Count fluttered his handkerchief. Your clothes, I mean, that white gown, where is it made? Who is your couturier? Spice's green eyes sparkled mischievously. Oh, I just ran up most of my things on the sewing machine. The Count giggled and patted her hand. Not again, you are pulling my leg now, but I forgive you. He greeted Chris and Geronimo and turned to the couple behind them. Nothing like that back on the reservation, Geronimo muttered under his breath. I don't think he's as sappy as he seems, said Spice. Apparently he's done a lot for Brissy. Like what, for instance, said Chris. Well, that modernistic building in town? It's an agricultural institute he endowed to help improve the local farm products. A servant offered them glasses of punch from a tray. Chris was looking about, appalled at the number of people he would have to check. I'd better circulate around the garden, he remarked in a low voice. The fluorescent X mark may show up better in the semi-darkness. Three strolled outdoors. Chris was startled as he recognized a figure standing near the punch bowl. A tall, gray-haired, mummy-like man in evening clothes. Alexander Valud. He was with a younger man, dressed in a white jacket. Valud's companion was about 25 or 30, with a hard, deeply tanned Mediterranean type of face. The tall one is Valud, Chris whispered. Geronimo's eyes narrowed. Do they see us? I don't know. Not yet, I think. The teen agents veered wide to the large table loaded with platters of hors d'oeuvres and wandered down the garden slope. For the next half an hour, Chris mingled with the throng, cautiously beaming his UV ring at every hand within range. He was beginning to grow slightly discouraged when he suddenly struck gold. Under the ultraviolet rays, an axe, pale green and luminous, glowed on the back of a man's left hand. He had rumpled sandy hair, an ill-fitting dark suit, and high Slavic cheekbones. Chris drew a deep breath. He was about to release the prongs of the ring as a servant approached with a tray of canopies. The next instant, Chris froze in disbelief. An X mark was showing on the servant's left hand. Chris swished off the ring, and the mark faded at once. He looked around, scanning the faces of the other guests nearby. Apparently, no one had noticed the briefly glowing symbols except his own two companions, Spice and Geronimo. Chris exchanged glances with them. Did you see that? Spice nodded. Looks like double stamp night. They strolled off a few paces. Two possible contacts? Chris whispered. 
Which one has the phony? said Spies. Why stop it too? If someone's muscled into the act, there may be more. Oh, great. Now there's a cheery thought, said Chris. But you're right. I'd better keep on checking. You two keep your eyes on that pair. Moving on, Chris resumed scanning every knot of guests with his ring. Dinner was served, buffet style, but he stayed out of the food lines. By 10.15, he felt he had checked everyone in sight except a man standing in the courtyard near the open doorway. Chris moved closer to the man, squeezing the prongs of the ring to make it flash. His jaws tightened as a luminous X glowed on the left hand of number three. Chapter 12. The Tower Room Three people wearing the invisible mark which was to identify Omega's contact. There had certainly been a leak somewhere. The third man standing near the doorway of the chateau was middle-sized, compactly built, with sharp, hard-bitten features. Chris's keen eyes detected a suspicious bulge near the left armpit of his tuxedo. Of all three, he seemed to be the one best fitted for the role of spy or double agent, a dealer in secret information. Which proved nothing, Chris realized. The man's mission might well be to intercept Omega's contact. Besides, there was the first man's Slavic facial features. If not French, he might be a turncoat from behind the Iron Curtain, with red secrets to sell. Then there was the second man, the servant. Who would be in a better position to eavesdrop on conversations or pick up valuable gossip? From what Spice had said, the Count no doubt had a wide assortment of visitors at the chateau on whom the servant might have spied. The man near the doorway had just handed his empty plate to his servant and was lighting a cigarette. Chris moved closer and spoke to him chattily in French. Quite an evening, huh, monsieur? The man's eyes, like steel needles, etched a slow portrait of Chris's face and filed it away. Un affaire formidable, he agreed. You are a friend of the Count's? Just a guest, a tourist, in fact. Uh, American, Chris nodded. My name is Christopher Cool. The man granted him a brusque handshake. Frenac, I'm a journalist from Paris. Here to report on the party? Frenac shrugged. Perhaps, if it is worth reporting on, one sees celebrities, movie stars, diplomats. Sometimes their antics make the news. What paper do you write for? Chris asked, sounding avidly impressed. I am freelance. And you, Monsieur Cool, what do you do? Chris grinned sheepishly. Just a college student. I came here with a girl from Madame Avril's Lycée, but I seem to have lost her somewhere. Fernac turned away. Say la vie. He seemed to have lost all interest. Chris wandered off. A small stringed orchestra was playing under the Japanese lanterns, and some of the guests were dancing. He caught sight of Spice, trapped among several of her schoolmates and their dates. Chris deftly extricated her and steered her out among the dancers. Any new candidates? Spice inquired softly. One more. Tell you about him in a minute. Think I see Geronimo over there. Let's go join him. They danced clear of the other couples and strolled off toward the Apache, who was standing alone under a tree, nibbling on a pedophore. Chris told them about the third man with an X mark and pointed him out. How about you two? Did you get a line on the others? Spice indicated the sandy man with the high cheekbones. 
He was seated on a garden bench, sipping a glass of punch. I wangled a short chat with him. He's an agricultural chemist, doing research at the institute in town. His name is Ravatsky. He came to France as a refugee, either from East Germany or Poland. He was a little vague about that. What about the other guy, the servant? Geronimo rolled his eyes. On the right, with the coffee pot. Chris glanced in the direction of the eye roll. A colorful group, which included several Africans in bright robes and an Indian prince, were clustered around a French movie star. The servant, a stocky man with slick blonde hair, was pouring demitasse for them. Did you find out anything about him? Chris questioned. I heard somebody called him Mouton, said Geronimo. I tried to palaver with him, but he was too rushed to talk. I don't trust him. Seems sly like a coyote to me. Well, that figures. If he's an eavesdropper who peddles information, said Chris, might be the type who goes in for petty blackmail, only this time he stumbled into something big. Geronimo nodded. Could be. Which leaves us with the same problem as before, Spice murmured. Which of these guys is the real contact? Chris said slowly. Well, Hansen knew the setup was dangerous. That probably means... There were enemy agents on deck, watching the real X. If I identify myself to the wrong guy, it could ruin our chances of getting the lowdown on Skykill. It could ruin you, Chunde. The Apache's expressionless dark eyes meant those of his partner. Chris didn't need a warning. He was all too aware that he might be staking his own life once he made the contact. The wrong guess could be fatal. So what do we do? asked Spice. She tried to make her voice sound as gay and casual as ever, but didn't quite succeed. Chris pondered a moment. Where's Valud? The teenagers scanned the throng milling around the garden. The art dealer and his tough-looking companion were nowhere inside. Maybe in the chateau somewhere, Spice said. Chris went on thoughtfully. Well, the evening's not over yet. Let's keep an eye on all three X's and see if we can pick up a clue. We'll watch whom? Geronimo asked. Well, we've each spoken to one of them, so we better play it cool and switch. Geronimo, you keep tabs on Fernac. Spice, see what you can do with Mouton. I'll tell Ravatsky. While Chris was speaking, the sandy-haired chemist rose from the garden bench and strolled toward the punch table. He set down his glass and stood gazing at the dancers. Chris wandered off through the garden. Bit by bit, he worked his way toward the courtyard, where the punch table was located. Before he reached it, Ravatsky walked into the chateau. Chris followed cautiously. The great hall of Chateau Bercy was almost empty, except for servants going in and out. Several guests were admiring a huge tapestry that depicted a medieval hunting scene. Ravatsky was now nowhere to be seen. Chris paused to get his bearings. A wall chart nearby, evidently for tourists on visiting days, bore a diagram of the chateau with labels in French, English, German, Spanish, and Italian. Chris pretended to study it. Suddenly he stifled a gasp. The top room of one tower in the diagram bore a penciled X mark. Was the mark simply a chance scrawl by a guide or visitor, 
or had the real X put it there as a hint that Omega should meet him in that tower. The chart was defaced with several scribbled initials and dates, and the X mark could just be another scribble. Yet Chris had a strong hunch that it had been put there intentionally. The tower with the mark was at the north rear corner of the chateau overlooking the river. Now how could he reach it? Chris studied the diagram more closely. The staircase from the main hall led to a gallery on the next floor. By following the gallery to the right, he would reach a spiral staircase that wound upward into the tower. What if he was stopped by the Count's servants? Worse, what if the enemy agents had seen the mark? They might be lurking in the chateau on watch for anybody going into the tower. I'd better fake a disguise, Chris decided. Several rooms opened off the great hall. Chris sidled toward one that appeared dark and slipped into it while no one was looking. The room was furnished in Empire style. By the light through the open doorway from the brilliant chandeliers outside, Chris could see purple and gold-striped drapes shrouding tall windows. The teen agent grinned. Just what I need. A perfect set of threads for the well-designed Afro-Asian man about town. From the emergency kit strapped inside his cummerbund, he took a small tin of dark ointment used for night commando operations and a black nylon elastic skull cap. Chris fitted the cap tightly over his blonde hair, then pushed up his sleeves and rubbed the ointment over his face and hands. The stuff soon dried, staining his skin a dark walnut hue. Tinted contact lenses over his blue eyes completed the makeup job. With a jackknife, Chris slashed down one of the drapes, mentally vowing to send the Count a payment for damages later. From part of the material, he fashioned himself a turban. The rest became a gaudy, poncho-style garment. Emerging from the Empire Room, Chris strode across the Great Hall and mounted the staircase. On the next floor, he followed a long gallery, hung with portraits of Debrecy ancestors, to its end, where another corridor branched right into the north wing. At the corner was a stone stairway spiraling up to the tower. Chris began the long ascent. One floor up, he encountered an ancient gray-haired servant. Monsieur, the old man quavered, c'est parti du château, n'est pas ouvert au public. Chris responded with a flash of white teeth and a cheerful flood of Swahili. The old man looked confused, then shrugged and allowed the lordly-looking African to pass. Chris continued up the winding staircase. Here and there, the curved stone wall of the tower was pierced with narrow windows. The diffuse glow of light from the lower floors gradually faded into enveloping darkness as he mounted higher and higher. Chris switched on his pocket flashlight but cautiously cupped its rays with his hands. At last he reached the top. A massive wooden door blocked his way into the chamber. Chris hesitated, then flicked off his light and tried the antiquated bronze latch. The door creaked open slowly. Inside was darkness, broken only by faint shafts of moonlight filtering through two casement windows. Chris closed the door cautiously behind him and switched on his flashlight again. The stone-flagged room was bare except for a large armoire and a long oak refectory table. Now what? Simply wait for X to appear? Perhaps there was a message. 
Chris strode across the room and opened the armoire. A dank smell of moldy wood greeted his nostrils, but it was empty. As he paused uncertainly, Chris heard a faint sound of steps outside. Switching off his flashlight, he ducked softly into the wardrobe and pulled the door almost shut, leaving a crack just wide enough to peer through. He crouched in the musty darkness, waiting, but whoever was outside the room made no move to enter. Instead, Chris heard a key turn. He was being locked in the room. A shrill peal of maniacal laughter echoed outside the chamber, making the short hairs bristle on Chris's scalp. Utter silence followed. As he strained his ears to listen, Chris suddenly shivered. He had begun to feel chilly. His skin was tightening into goosebumps. A terrifying thought pierced him. He pushed open the door and burst out. The whole room was growing colder. The temperature was dropping by the second. Chris's heart lurched. It must have been the chiller's crazy laugh that he had heard. He had blundered straight into a deadly trap. <laughs>